Good morning. How's everyone doing? Very good. The Spirit is definitely here this morning. Uh, a lot of references from my sermon were already talked about, so that feels really great. Um, so last week, uh, beginning of Genesis chapter 3, was essentially a, a crime, right? A crime scene. There was the deception, choices were made, sin was birthed, and that leads us right up to today's passage where we have the fallout, right? Those things have to be processed. And so that's what we're going to be going into today. Uh, our sermon title is God's Blessing Counters Man's Rebellion. So in today's passage, God rightly performs the role of judge, jury, and executioner. The serpent, the woman, and Adam are found guilty of various crimes and are given their sentences. Now, you've probably come across this passage before, as it definitely belongs in the category of Bible stories everybody knows, right? Uh, maybe along with Noah and the Ark, Daniel and the lion's den, and of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But in preparing for this sermon, the interpretive challenges are staggering. What does this passage mean for women, for men, for the natural state of being human? What does it say about who we are? And what does it say about who God is? I mean, it seems like God is all anger and, and judgment and vengefulness. You know, usually I read right past this passage thinking, yep, that's the fall, but thank goodness for Jesus, and I keep it moving. Um, but now that I'm preaching it, I've taken a closer look, and I'm shocked by what is subtly woven into the fabric of the story. Everything isn't as it seems. We will look deeper at this passage, clarify a few outstanding items, and learn more about our great God. When we do this, we'll see a new beauty in our God. We'll see his mercy, patience, and love on display right at the moment of humankind's betrayal. Let's dive in. So this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you that we can gather here today to learn more about you and your great story. This morning passage contains threads of sorrow and joy, cursing and blessing, woven into a beautiful tapestry. I pray as we walk through today's passage, we will acknowledge the sorrow and not overlook the blessing. There is much to deal with today, and I pray that you will grant us understanding by your spirit. Amen. So, the first defendant in this case uh, is an odd case in that it's a talking serpent that was possessed by the Satan that might have had legs before this all went down. You know, its crime was deceiving the woman and tricking her into doubting God and disobeying him. You know, by the way, the fruit of the tree probably wasn't full of special spiritual powers, right? It's not magic fruit, um, but rather it was a forbidden object that would pass on the personal knowledge of evil if Adam and the woman ever ate it. Now, some of you might be thinking of this picture, of a cute garter snake that was merely talking to the woman, seeking to lead her astray. But uh, it's important to have a clear understanding of your adversary. So let's take a look at the real serpent. This is from Revelation 12, written by John the disciple. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. What kind of serpent are you picturing now? Just now, for a moment in your mind, picture looking at that serpent in the garden through the eyes of the woman in all her innocence. Now think about who is really speaking through the mouth of the serpent. Who's behind those eyes looking back at her, lying to her? There he is, the devil, in the form of a serpent, sinisterly enticing the innocent woman to betray God. His lies stripped them of their innocence, laying bare their shame, as we heard about last week. The serpent's sentence was to be humbled below all livestock, crawling on its belly, eating in the dirt, right? Now, this curse laid upon our conception of a modern-day snake doesn't make much sense, right? Uh, since how we know them, they don't have legs. But taking a dragon's legs? Going from mighty and above all creatures to below all livestock, crawling on its belly, eating in the dirt. Now that curse has teeth. And the Satan's curse was to be permanently at war with humankind. 
and one day doomed to defeat. Revelations 20 shows us exactly what this looks like. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Verse 10, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Oof, sorry about that. Spoiler alert, a little late uh, for the story of earth. Uh, the devil loses, by the way. Uh, he is crushed by God. So what does that mean for us? It means raise your head and walk in victory in spite of all the evil you see around you, and there is plenty to see. The devil will be crushed, and we will stand with God victorious. Now, the woman's crime was believing the, servant, the serpent over God. By doing so, she gave birth to sin. So her sentence was twofold. First, childbirth and rearing, an already painful experience, would have had its pain multiplied. Now, personally, I've been in two delivery rooms so far. Yeah, I can attest. This curse, still in effect. Uh, second, her very nature was changed. So she would, now to she would now desire to devour and overpower Adam and would pursue this by exploiting his weaknesses. And Adam would seek to maintain control through dominating power. What a terrible relationship dynamic. I wonder if you've seen this in marriages amongst your friends and families. You know, we can picture a scenario where she would attack his character through words, seeking to wound his insecurities. And he might turn around and raise his voice and shout her down, intimidating her through his use of power. This can go the other way, where he may raise his voice and tower over her, and she responds quietly, if you were a real man. You can see it, right? And we can even see this play out at its worst on the national stage by looking at stats just on U.S. domestic violence. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. Uh, one in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year. And 90% of those children are eyewitnesses to this violence. And on average, more than three women and one man are murdered by their intimate partners in the U.S. every day. A curse. So, sidebar, let's get into it. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, this is narrative, not normative? Yeah, this passage is not normative teaching. This only tells us what happened. This is not God teaching us through the Bible that there is a new ideal design for marriage, relationships, and husbands need to make sure their wives submit. Rather, this is a curse. Before the fall, their relationship was in harmonious balance. They were rulers over earth, naming creatures, walking and talking with God Almighty in the garden, as close as you like, but no longer. 
Now, Adam's crime. Adam's crime was heeding the voice of his wife and choosing to break God's commandment, though he wasn't deceived. He watched his wife sin. He was right there. Then he went along with it and did the same. He was sentenced to a life of hard labor, his endeavors choked by thorns and thistles, and at the end of it, he would return as dust to the very ground he was made from. Now, by a show of hands here, this is where you can participate, uh, so get ready to participate, you know, get ready. Um, who here has a job free of any obstacles or difficulties or challenges or stress? I'll wait. Uh, no hands, huh? It's about what I figured. Uh, so we're all familiar with this curse on the surface, but let's push it deeper. Let's assume everything went perfectly in your work. Your boss is on your side, you have all the resources, people actually meet their commitments and give you the things they said they were gonna do on the project, right? Again, this is a fantasy, right? Um, let's think about what the end result would still be in the words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 21. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and hard work under the sun? How meaningless! So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Still, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This, too, is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people in this life get for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief, and even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Adam and us work our whole lives only to have everything fade to dust. Everything goes to descendants, competitors, or the government and is redistributed. And all that work, toiling away, keeps you up at night, restless with anxiety as you think about keeping your boss happy and your customers happy. What a curse! So the courtroom scene ends, and we're left with questions, right? Where's the love? Where's the mercy? You preacher types are always talking about how God's attributes are unchanging. He's just and merciful. All I see is justice, so where's the beef? I mean, where's the grace, right? Well, let's take a look at verse 20 of our, of our passage today. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, up to this point, you've probably picked, on, picked up on something. Uh, no, I'm not a chauvinist. Uh, neither is Adam. Until this point in the story, uh, in Hebrew, Adam's helper is referred to as Isha, which means out of man, since she came from Adam's rib. But now Adam names Eve. It's the first time she's named, first time she's granted this new identity, which sounds like Hebrew for life giver, right? And resembles the word for living. 
She's given a new name that symbolizes her new nature. She will be the mother of all people, including the seed referred to in verse 15. So this is a beautiful demonstration as well of Adam's faith in God's promise of the coming seed. Adam believes God right after receiving the curses for their sin, a double blessing, as Eve's curse of multiplied pain and childbirth will lead to the coming seed. And Adam demonstrates his faith in God. But more later on the coming seed. Now, God, next, God blesses them by replacing their inadequate fig leaf clothing with animal skin clothes. Yeah, fig leaf clothing, right? Uh, so the animal skins, stronger and better for sure. But also, this is the first physical death of a living being. Prior to this, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They had no need for clothes, for they lived in innocence. But now, by their sin, they became aware of their nakedness, felt ashamed, and tried to fashion for themselves covering. But they were inadequate. Could you imagine wearing those fig leaves sewn together as clothes and attempting something as simple as cleaning around the house? Uh, the first time you bend over to pick up that laundry basket, rip, thwap, right? Your frail, small, slapdash coverings will be on the, on the ground. Heaven forbid one of the other folks in the house happens by and takes in that sight. Yikes. But what about you? When you see that you don't measure up, that you've missed the mark, how do you go about covering that shame? What are you covering? And what are your fig leaves? How are they working out for you? Or do they shred the first moment you've been to pick up the laundry basket? Let's take a practical step. With who do you process these types of questions? If you don't have someone to talk to about these things, we have groups of folks who meet in the community during the week to discuss these things over meals or in smaller, uh, more intimate conversations. You're welcome to join those today, now. You too can have that. Uh, ask me how after. Don't go another day covered in fig leaves when God wants to give you real clothes. Come to the good tailor. Get real clothes. Why? Because our God is merciful. He blesses them. He clothes them, covering their shame. But more still, how is important. Those animal skins weren't cheap. They cost a life. He covered their shame by sacrifice. Their shame is covered by death. That is the weight of sin, yours and mine. But this was merely symbolic. Their sin wasn't covered by the mere sacrifice of an animal in an ultimate sense. This was meant to point toward a coming sacrifice, one that will once and for all cover sin and shame. And this would be the ultimate victory of the seed. So about that seed, let's return to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the latter part of verse 15 is, in fact, a beautiful and hope-giving prophecy. And again, I typically zoom right past it. Through Eve, one of her descendants will bear a son who will crush the head of the serpent, once and for all, seizing victory in the war against Satan. This is called by theologians the Proto-Evangelion, right? As it's the first glimpse of the gospel. Some have even dared to call it the entire story of the Bible. Now, this prophecy was realized when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the Satan. But it doesn't stop there, for the kingdom of God is already upon us. Curses are already starting to break. Remember Eve's second curse? And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you? This was the curse that set the wife and husband at odds, right? Well, now, for us who believe, we are empowered by the Spirit of God through Jesus' sacrifice to replace the curse with something even better than their pre-fall state. We're given a model for how we should live, but more importantly, and the power to do it. This is given to us in Ephesians 5. Now, I'm not going to unpack it in full. It is a lot of ground to cover, but I want you to have God's ideal design for marriage kind of just wash over you. So I'm just going to read through it and then point out a few things. So this is Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And further, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. For he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So what do we see here? Men and women are shown how to live together, empowered by the grace of God. First, both are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, up to and including dying for her. Now, side note here, it's kind of tricky to reconcile the trope of a harsh Christian husband demanding submission from his wife. 
with the image of Christ willingly going to the cross and dying for his bride, right? These two things do not go together. Now, finally, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, for the, head, for the husband is the head of the wife, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You know, I was talking this over with Danielle yesterday in you know, preparation, and she asked me, well, what does this look like in the day-to-day? And I told her, you know, well, uh, when you come into our house, we have like a living room with like a TV, and then off to the side, there's like hallway and then dining room and kitchen. And so there's like a couch. And I think like our family spends a lot of their life on or around that couch. It's busting at the seams. It is a well-loved couch. Um, I told her, well, sometimes I come out here late at night and I see you passed out on the couch, right? And I think about all the work you carry and the pace of our family's life, and I wonder if we're taking on too much, if we need to make changes so that you can be better rested and able to be your full self. See, while I might be the head, my focus is on her good and the good of the children, not in ruling over her for my own benefit and my satisfaction. How good is it that our God, even before his return, is already showering his children with blessings like this? Now, let's return to the garden once more, for there's a secret blessing. Look at verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach his, out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So why did God evict our ancestors from the garden? After all, they would lose their rosy life in closeness with him. But what would have happened to them had they taken the fruit from the tree of life and eaten it? They would have gained eternal life. But they would have gained an eternally cursed life. That would have been a true nightmare. But God in his loving mercy protected them from this possibility by evicting them from the garden. Now, they say that the Garden of Eden was destroyed in the Great Flood. No surprise there. But what happened to the Tree of Life? Was it lost? No. Notice in verse 24, it doesn't say to keep men from coming to the Tree of Life. Rather, it says to guard the way to the Tree of Life to block and protect humans from choosing the wrong path through physical work, right? It says, lest he reach out his hand. The tree of life can no longer be seized by your hands. You must come through the only spiritual means God has provided. But make no mistake, the tree of life is alive. In fact, he is risen. Hey, there it is. (laughs) Like clockwork. Thank you, Jessica. Um, Now, here we are at John 14, 6, famous passage. But again, let's overlay that into our topic today. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
Jesus is the tree of life. He can give eternal life to all who trust in him and not their own merits to pass God's judgment. Now, there is a pastor and author named Ray Pritchard, and he explains this beautifully, commenting on Revelations 22. So Revelations 22 begins, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So his commentary goes like this. When John gets a final glimpse of the heavenly city of God, he sees the throne of God, and from that throne, a mighty river of water, the water of life, flowing through the midst of the city. And there on each side of the river stood the tree of life. One tree? Many trees? Who knows? The tree of life is now everywhere. Each month, it brings forth a fruit, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations, meaning God intends that vast multitudes should come to this tree and find strength and life and help and hope and healing. All right. It's Bible nerd time. Um, so after the fall, the tree of life was guarded by cherubim. And you're probably picturing these cute guys, right? Uh, no, that's, that's not right. It's actually, uh, yeah, much better. Yeah, a much more accurate depiction of cherubim. That's who's on guard. Um, and you can check out Ezekiel 10 to fact check me. Now, during the days of Israel and of their tabernacle, God's presence dwelt in the innermost sanctum called the Holy of Holies, right? So it was separated uh, from the rest of the tabernacle, think tent when they were traveling uh, in that period of Israel. And then later on when the temple was built, it was a permanent structure. Still, there was a veil, right? That veil, a vast, heavy drape made of fine linen. Yet you can see it here towards the back, kind of in the middle to the left. That actually um, is made of fine linen, and purple, and blue, and scarlet yarn, and embroidered with gold cherubim. Again, protecting the way to the tree of life. But what happened when Christ was crucified? We can see it here in Matthew 27. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lemesabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, hey, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. 
The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, truly, this man was the son of God. Notice the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The cherubim have been parted by God and the way to God was opened once more through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, all people are welcome to come to the tree of life, to know true healing and forgiveness and have eternal life with God. So again, I bid you today, come to God. Come trade your worthless fig leaves that will tear away for animal skins that will hold. Be naked no more. Come pass through the torn veil by faith and partake of the tree of life. Come to God and be made new and empowered to live as he intended us to. Come to God's people and learn to live this way in community, standing on the sacrifice of Christ and his promises. The only way is through Jesus' sacrifice. I'm repeating myself. I'm really trying to hammer this point home. This is done by throwing down your fig leaves and trusting God's sacrifice to cover you. This is what you must do. Come now. Don't delay. Tomorrow is not promised. Please come to the one who can give you true life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for revealing your truth to us through your holy scriptures. Please allow us to find wonder, joy, and comfort in beholding your mercy for our sin and providing a path to redemption, a path that you constructed through the blood of your son's sacrifice. We're grateful that within the first set of decrees, you wove mercy and redemption into the curses. You cursed and you stayed. You came and lived with us, died for us, made a way for us to return to you with eternal life. And for that, we thank you. Amen.